Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. In a week during which Keir Starmer's Labour tanked in the local elections, I speak to two brilliant local leaders who managed to defy this trend. Matthew Brown is leader of Preston City Council and the driving force behind the Preston model, as well as the co-author of Paint Your Town Red, which you can buy now from Repeater Books. Paul Dennett is the city mayor of Salford and frequent contributor to Tribune magazine, including a recent piece on why socialist Salford bucked the trend in the recent elections. Thank you so much to all our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want to access the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, Matthew Brown, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic, Grace. Thanks for the invite. Great. Congratulations on a great result in Preston. Um, Clearly quite different to what happened in many other parts of the country. What do you think was your secret to uh, that success? I think a lot of it is really hard work and hardworking candidates. That's a big part of it. But I think having a, a clear set of policies and ideas and strategy has really helped in the sense that we're quite a radical Labour council. We really do want to change the system where we are, so put more democracy in our economy, promote a real living wage, affordable housing, but crucially give people more ownership over the working lives. And it's the hardest thing ever in the sense that local government's restricted and we're quite a small council, but you know we've got big plans going forward and there's been lots of successes already in terms of city centre regeneration, higher wages and Lots of public money going to locally based suppliers as well, which has created lots and lots of jobs in our community. So I think that's all made a big difference. So why do you think then that Labour did so much better in Preston than in other parts of the country? What do you think were some of the problems with Labour's strategy at a national level versus, you know, as you were saying, you know, obviously there's some very specific things about Preston as an area that you can kind of ascribe to the success that took place over the weekend. But what was missing, I suppose, at the national level campaign? I think there's a sense that politics has changed forever in that we've had uh, an economic crash of 2007-8, which you've wrote about very very well yourself. We've stolen, we've had the austerity agenda for over a decade. Now we've had this pandemic and there's been Brexit. So I think communities are crying out for change. Now, Some of that might be voting for Jeremy Corbyn in 2017, which did appeal to many people. But it also might be voting for for Brexit because potentially they are uh, using that to kick the establishment and also, you know, say, well, we need some kind of change. Obviously, to the right in this instance rather than the left with the Tories backing it. So, you know, I think Labour nationally, we need to actually offer quite a bold vision that that people's lives will get a lot better and there will be that radical transformation because people in our communities up in the northwest and elsewhere, you know, back in the 70s and before and even the 80s to a degree, you did have, you know, very high paid jobs. There's a lot more wealth going in people's wages. You know, now there's been deindustrialization, low wages, casualization. And I think, you know, if we're not going to say something that's going to inspire people and that's going to really 
resonate with them and offer transformation to their lives, then other parties will take take advantage really. So it's not about personalities. It's really that we've got to say that, you know, if you vote Labour, things will get substantially better. And that needs to be made clear. Yeah, I mean, one big thing that kept coming up um, when uh, voters were kind of responding to the election results or being asked before the election was that people didn't really know what Labour stood for. And this obviously has something to do with the absence of a very compelling policy agenda at the national level. What kind of policies do you think Starmer and his team should be trying to push, both in light of the pandemic and also all the other massive challenges that, as you mentioned, our economy has been facing since broadly 2008? I mean, if you look at Kia's 10 pledges, I mean, I think the vast majority of the party when the leadership election took place were totally behind that. So if you're talking about public ownership, workers' rights, tackling the environmental crisis, you know, tackling discrimination, redistribution of wealth. I think that's where the party is, to be honest. And, you know, we've got to try and get back to that because people need that now, because ultimately we've had this worst public health crisis since the Second World War, and that follows the austerity agenda. So policies like that, I think, will be very popular. And in Preston, we're trying to mirror some of those, again, with what restrictive powers we have in local government because we do support more worker-owned firms we do support alternative banking arrangements we do support a real living wage we do now want to look at how we can rebuild council housing and this was all in our manifesto in our in our pledges which went through people's uh, doorsteps in Preston so I think you know Labour locally and nationally we've really got to be on that agenda that says that people have had a hard time in the last few decades and we've got to offer them something that's substantial and going to inspire them as well. Now, you in Preston have obviously been doing some of that um, yourselves with the now famous Preston model. And you've got a book that's coming out uh, about that at the moment, Paint Your Town Red, which is uh, which is great. And yeah, which we're obviously doing a book launch together. I think the day that I know the week after this podcast comes out. So for any of you who want to hear more of this conversation, then uh, do make sure you put that in your diaries. But can you tell us a little bit about what the Preston model is and why it represents something of a kind of departure from what you ordinarily have seen with Labour councils at the local level over recent decades? Yeah, I mean, the inspiration actually of community wealth building, it came from the American Rust Belt. So way back about 10 years ago, when I got into the cabinet of Preston City Council, I mean, I used to write the manifestos, I still do actually. So you know, I was really keen on the alternative economies of Amelia Romana, Mondragon and others, you know, Quebec social economy. And I was thinking, well, how do we try, if we can, to bring some of that to, to Preston? And we came across a guy called Ted Howard in America who uh, coined the phrase community wealth building with his colleagues. And it's basically about trying to have a more democratic and sustainable local economy that's resilient. So... A big part of it is looking at what you have already. So big institutions like councils, universities, hospitals, getting them to recruit locally and employ locally. It's looking at promoting more democracy in the commercial economy. So that's worker-owned businesses, employee-owned businesses, cooperatives and other things. It's looking at what you do with your assets. Don't necessarily sell your assets off to a big developer, which was our plan up until 2011 when that strategy fell through in Preston. And then it's looking at insourcing and, uh, you know, municipal ownership of 
energy and other things. And it's a big tent approach in the sense that a lot of it's really common sense, buy local, hire local, but a lot of it is is transformative in the sense you try to put more ownership of uh, the local economy in the hands of the people who live within it and crucially get the big institutions as well and even local businesses. But it does, Grace, take time. You know, it's uh, something that can't be done in one or two years. It's probably a decade, really. But you can make a good start by doing things like becoming a real living wage employer or making sure when you buy construction work that you break it down into a smaller lot so local companies are more likely to succeed. And when you put that all together, it is genuinely transformative. And how does this represent a departure from the strategies that have been tried by councils in recent years, particularly in response to austerity. Obviously, there's been massive, massive cuts to the local government central grant, which you know has really been one of the parts of the state that has seen the, the biggest cuts since 2010. And the local authorities have responded in very different ways, a lot of them going for kind of outsourcing agenda in which they you know pay private organisations to deliver services on their behalf. And often that is associated with actually higher costs over the long run. And, and worse outcomes. How is this a departure from, from that model? It does try to turn that on its head, really. And the culture in local government, in local politics, it's often that your economic strategy is based around inward investment. And councils of all persuasions, probably for what they say is positive reasons, see it that way. That, you know, it's just trying to say to, to big companies and big developers coming to our community create jobs but you know it seems fine on the surface but what it doesn't look at is the extraction of wealth because often if you do outsource a service or if you do semi-privatize or privatize your land or put it into a partnership with a large global developer what happens is the wealth actually goes into the hands of uh, shareholders and not within the local community and ironically you get less jobs the tide bond regeneration scheme that we try pursuing from the late 90s to about 2011 with Grosner and then Lendlease, what would have happened with that is impressed and a lot of the publicly owned land would have been put into a vehicle, so it'd be split 50-50, semi-privatised. And crucially as well, they'd have brought their own big construction corporations to do the work. So our local companies, our small businesses, who are winning so much public work now are saying we wouldn't have had a chance, you see. And if you go to an SME firm in Preston, you've got a family often of like 50, 60, 70 subcontractors, often self-employed people who live in the community. So you actually get significantly less jobs. So this is really common sense, but it does challenge a culture in local government that's basically quite neoliberal. And, uh, you know, I think that's why potentially there's some resistance to these ideas, because it does actually challenge that, really. And can you tell us a little bit about the role of anchor institutions in the community wealth building model? Yes, I mean, that's been really positive in the sense that obviously some of them are political. So obviously councils are political, as is our police and crime commissioner. But obviously we've got a hospital, university, further education colleges, the largest housing association, community gateway. There's labour councils on that. That's one of our anchor institutions. So collectively, most of them impressed and pay the real living wage, which is fantastic. And we're now the best area out of 14 councils in Lancashire for people who receive at least £9.50 an hour. And again, I think that's inspired people to a degree. All of them are, are procuring locally a lot more. A number of them have insourced. So there's been tens of millions that's been brought back into the local public sector, most notably Community Gateway and I think 
Sadly, the former Police and Crime Commissioner Clive Grunshaw, who brought custody suites back from G4S, as well as the council, a quite a comparatively small council, but we have insourced uh, the management of some venues. Uh, not a lot was, lot was outsourced in the first place, but we've done that. And then crucially as well, the anchor institutions are, are looking to do different things around skills. And our university, they're really helping us with developing worker cooperatives. So we've got plans to establish 10 worker cooperatives in Preston. There's three or four incubated already, but you know, we, we want to try and get hundreds of people in worker ownership in our community. And again, that is something that is starting to resonate with the community because we're getting lots of applications for people who want to do that. So when you back that with the plans we have for a, a regional cooperative bank, a community bank, and a cooperative education centre, which again is being incubated with our local trade unions, can you see how we're kind of like building that democracy in our economy? You know, and uh, these ideas aren't just Preston now, they're in dozens of places. And, you know, what we're seeing as well is there are anchor institution strategies and community wealth building strategies in, in American cities. So potentially we can have a transatlantic conversation, which we can take forward about how we can really support these alternative economies in our communities, building strategy, looking at co-ops, social enterprises and other things. I think in Sydney, Australia, they're looking at doing it through procurement. I think Amsterdam, obviously Mondragon is the prime example of community wealth building where you've got this fantastic network of, I think, 100 worker-owned firms with, I think, one of the, the outputs, something like 15 billion euros. And they've really transformed the local economy by having that democracy and worker ownership, really. So, yeah, so these alternatives are in many places and they're just growing now, to be honest. And I think, you know, we've got to look at something like this, something that potentially can be transformative and give people, you know, liberation in their working lives going forward, because I think people want that and I think they're crying out for it. Uh, you know, they might not know that they want it to a degree, but they do want change and to be more kind of control. And as I said before, people aren't voting the same way they did 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, they're voting for more radical, what they see as more radical options on left and right. And obviously the left has got to offer something radical that's got to get people behind us. That was a really interesting point there, because you spoke about kind of liberation um, and this idea of kind of taking control of, of our working lives. Obviously, in Preston, you've achieved loads of kind of material, concrete outcomes. You had most improved council area and have um, got some really interesting metrics as to how the Preston model has has changed the local area. And I'd be really interested to hear about those. But also, can you talk a bit more about how this model really speaks to those concerns that, again, you saw around Brexit that we've seen, you know, in lots of elections in recent years about taking back control, about making people feel empowered and involved in decision making processes? I mean, economic democracy is all about that because people just think democracy is going to vote for your local councillor or in a general election or in a referendum. But the idea of economic democracy is that the people who work in the workplace actually own and control the workplace to a degree. Or, you know, if you're a consumer, you actually own the bank, which we have plans for with the Northwest Mutual. And it's that empowerment that I think people potentially who were in really beaten up areas who you know I mean I voted to to remain uh you know it was a very marginal decision in my mind my mind but you know people who did vote to leave did actually you know it was a, an expression of kind of like help wasn't it to a degree in the sense that you know back in the 70s and 80s they had 
you know, proud communities. They did have high trade union membership, very well paid jobs. There was a lot more social housing and that had been taken away from them, you know, with insecurity, casualization, austerity, poverty. So you can understand how, you know, they're going to vote for radicalism on the left or potentially, you know, uh, the right to a degree. So, you know, I think trying to promote economic democracy where we encourage people to have more of a stake in their economic lives, I think that's one way of tackling that. And it's something that, you know, we've got to try and get behind because I think people need that and they deserve it. I mean, I mean, it's very common sense. If you look at things like John Lewis, for example, I know he's a bit of a potentially a middle-class example, but it's an employee-owned firm. So, you know, so it's actually owned by the employees and it's got into trouble in the last year. But up until then, you know, they'd have some say in how the company was operated and they actually share the profits as well so they get bonuses. And I think trying to get more of that in our local economies is something that we need and that would really empower people and liberate them to a degree. How do you think this model can support wider aims that the socialist movement has to try and build class power at the local level in communities, in workplaces, you know, within like the Labour Party? Um, How can it kind of feed into those uh, much kind of broader aims? I think it can, but it is a struggle, Grace, in the sense that, you know, we, we, we purposely, and I think the Conservatives have done this, have... You know, the, we're, we're really restricted in terms of what we can do locally. So you've got to get alliances with trade unions, the community, the institutions within your community. And that is the way to do it. And I think what's quite exciting is how the American trade unions, and I understand how it's very different because it's a lower union density and the state's much smaller. But the, the American trade unions, as well as what they do already, i.e. represent people in uh, with public and private employers. They're actually looking at acquiring uh, companies and putting them into workers' trusts. And, you know, we're going to be establishing in Preston a union cooperative, which will be the education centre. Potentially there's one more. And I'm just thinking, you know, union density is quite low and it's not gone up. It might have gone up a little during the pandemic. But crucially, if we can actually get more democracy in the commercial economy, which the trade unions support, potentially in conjunction with the cooperative movement, then that will will really empower uh, you know our class in terms of people who have to work for somebody else, you know. But it does take a few open minds because community wealth building has had a little resistance in the sense the I think one or two viewed it as an outsourcing agenda because it's very keen on cooperatives, but it wasn't. It was just trying to say, well, in the private sector in your community, let's have a more diverse mix and let's try to get local councils and others to support companies which people own uh, collectively as a cooperative so you know so it can be brought to scale this in quite a dramatic way but we need to have open minds and in Preston we've got it's fantastic our trades council are behind it our community are uh, for example our South Asian community that they've worked with the RMT to uh, begin to incubate in a, a taxi cooperative to actually stop the likes of uh Uber, who are coming into our community, potentially threatening the terms and conditions. We're looking at a translators cooperative. You know, the community groups are looking at how we can get a uh, you know, ceramics pottery cooperative coming into it. We're looking at former prisoners. We're looking at renewable energy. We're looking at cleaning. You know, it's really taken off as a movement. And I think, you know, if you have you know, trade unions, Labour Party, uh, you know, having that, 
those collaborations locally and regionally, I think it's going to be quite exciting what we can actually achieve. Thank you very much, Matt Brown, for joining me on this episode of A World Twin. It was great to have you on the show. And as I said, make sure that you check out Matt's book launch next week, which I will be hosting. Thank you very much, Matt, for joining me. Thank you very much, Grace. Hello, Paul Dennett, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing today? Doing very well, Grace. Thanks for asking me to come on. Delighted to be here. Thanks for joining us. So I wanted to ask you as a first question, in an election defined by Labour's terrible performance, what made Salford different? I think it was um, a number of things, really. Um, I'd say the ground game and the campaign that we ran in the city was was really important. We had a, a big social media presence. Comms was something we were working on on a regular basis, talking about different issues, whether that be achievements in office over the last five years or vision for the future in terms of building on some of that and what, what our kind of um, policy priorities were moving forward. I also think it comes down to people as well. You know, we've we had some amazing campaigning candidates in these local elections who were out knocking on doors when they could, obviously, with the, the COVID restrictions, leafleting, talking to residents, building their profile on social media as well, which we've relied on quite heavily in these elections with, obviously, with COVID-19. I also think we were quite hyper-local as well in terms of our our election and, and you know, talking about ward-specific issues and campaigning on those issues and, and running targeted campaigns as part of our overall approach to to campaigning, be that on things like Buell Hill Mansion, obviously the the, the cladding crisis post Grenfell. You know, we've got a lot of high rise blocks in the city which have been caught up in the industrial and regulatory crisis. Developments around HMOs and the city council standing up to to developers in different parts of the city, be that things like Broad Oak or Swinton Park Golf Course. So the ground game for me, I think, was was really really important in in all of this. And obviously, our, cam- our candidates are very much embedded in the community. They know what the issues are that, that residents are concerned about, and they're speaking to that through the Labour Party. I think we've got to be honest as well. Um, the Burnham impact clearly clearly had an impact. You know, Salford's part of Greater Manchester, and Burnham has been going down really well in terms of, you know, his history of standing up to the government advocating for Greater Manchester, being ambitious for Greater Manchester, all the stuff around bus franchising recently and being an advocate for the North and devolution more generally. I think that really resonated with with voters during this election. And I think probably finally, the third area I would say would be having a clear and coherent policy framework. As I say, we've delivered lots of different things over the past five years in office. We've communicated that. Um, we've demonstrated delivery and, you know, we've proven that, you know, Labour in local government isn't just about rhetoric. It is actually about transformational progressive policies delivering for the people of the city. And and as a consequence of that, I think, you know, when you're knocking on doors, people know who you are. They know what Labour stand for and what they've achieved in the city. And, and they're happy to to obviously support that moving forward. So I think all of those three things. And played into a really positive election result for the city of Salford and for Greater Manchester, more more broadly speaking. You mentioned there a lot about property and real estate and your relationship with developers. You've managed to get a pretty impressive record on building new council housing in the context of a kind of massive decline that we've seen in recent years. That's been a real achievement. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've done that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm very clear on one thing, and that is the market is never going to deliver um, the, the homes that we need. And when I talk about the homes we need, we're talking about truly affordable homes here. Um, it's what we called after World War II council housing. And it's interesting when you look back in time after World War II, homelessness in this country was rendered statistically insignificant. And why was that? Well, it was because councils were being resourced and empowered to build council housing en masse up and down this country. So what we've been doing in Salford is thinking, well, how can we be interventionist here? How can we tackle, if you like, the ills of the, the market in terms of building unaffordable housing, by and large, what's coming through the planning system. And also that's propped up by the government's national planning policy framework, which allows developers to make significant profits before they even need to think about building truly affordable housing and contributing to things like Section 106 agreements, which is around public realm, infrastructure, schools, all that sort of stuff. So what we've done in Salford is we've um, created our own development company, We've created this outside of the housing revenue account, and that means that whatever we build, the council owns, and that right to buy doesn't apply to, to what we actually build, which is really important because when we look at Greater Manchester since 1980, we've had around over 95,000 homes purchased under right to buy. Many of those have never been replaced, and many of them find their way into the private rented sector. I think the national statistics on some of this is something like 40% of homes purchased under right to buy find their way into the private rented sector, where we've got huge challenges with decency, with affordability. So, you know, public sector intervention, I'm absolutely convinced of this, is the only way to tackle the housing and homelessness crisis. So we're building, we've already committed finance to building hundreds of council homes. And obviously in this next term of my uh, my term of office, I'm I'm determined to get that into the thousands. Um, so really exciting times. And that for me is fundamentally how we tackle the housing and homelessness crisis is by building council housing, linking it with the whole skills and works agenda. You know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about net zero carbon homes or fabric first. And, and that's really what I want to see, you know, the council engaging with, you know, call it new municipalism, call it neo-Keynesianism, whatever you really want to call it, I, I'm not bothered, but it's about building council houses that people can genuinely afford that are high quality and create great places in our city for people to live in. What do you think that the Labour leadership should be learning from the experiences that, that have been so successful in the North West? So it's, it's, a, it's a really good question that. Um, for me, it, I think... Having a clear policy offer and perspective is really, really important. You know, we went into this election having absolute clarity about what we thought the key campaign issues were. And, you know, at the moment from the National Labour Party, I think we have to be honest, you know, we've not got policy clarity from the party and we didn't have policy clarity from the party going into these elections. So I think we've got to be really honest about that. And that that did have an impact because, you know, so the electorate were asking, well, what, what does the Labour Party stand for nationally? What does Keir Starmer stand for nationally? You know, and we've got to be honest about that. That was that was a real challenge for us. I think importantly for me, my experiences in Salford is about not being ashamed about traditional Labour values. You know, this is about interventionism. It's about new municipalism. It's about people over profit. It's about jobs and opportunities for all of our residents. And it's also about, you know, the public sector and the state having a duty 
to intervene to get the best results for for our people. And that's not just in times of crisis, whether that be, you know, the COVID pandemic or the financial crash or, you know, high unemployment, whatever it may be. I, I think, you know, it's about not being ashamed about those traditional labour values and, you know, clearly communicating that publicly to the people we want to, to vote for us. And I think for me, one of the certainly over the last five, 10 years I've been involved in local government, one of the biggest failures is is for me for, from the Labour Party is not politicising austerity. You know, time and time again, we see Labour councils up and down the country being blamed for cuts, being blamed for job losses, being blamed for the loss of services. And actually, through the COVID pandemic, we realised quite clearly that, you know, austerity was absolutely a political choice. And, you know, the Labour Party should have been campaigning on that, in my opinion, years and years ago. And, you know, hopefully we've learned from that experience and we can be a bit more bolder and ambitious for local government and call out austerity as a political programme of the Conservative Party. Are you worried at all about the fact that the Tories seem to be taking up what you called there some of those traditional Labour values by, for example, you know, spending more in the pandemic, promising to invest in the regions, claiming they care about climate breakdown? Yeah, I mean, I, I am worried about that. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it's what I refer to as pork barrel politics, basically targeting constituencies where they have a small majority or where they want to try and gain a seat with with resources um, to, to, to basically win support and win votes. And I'm not sure that's a, a medium to long term strategy that's in the interests of the United Kingdom, if I'm honest with you. You know, we need a proper, robust industrial economic strategy that we can all collaborate and work towards. And, you know, pork barrel politics, buying political allegiances, I think feels to me a very short term problematic approach to you know, how we actually do economic development in, in, in this country moving forward. So we, we've already seen this. This is not new either. Um, you know, we saw it years ago with Surrey County Council, if you remember the, the sweetheart deals on social care and the, the transitional grant funding going into councils back in the day. None of this is new. It's been happening for a long time. And I think what Labour needs to do is expose this for what it is. Um, in terms of port barrel politics and actually articulate a bold, ambitious and progressive vision um, for the future that isn't about just targeting areas of the country for political gain, but it's about everybody in this country benefiting from Labour's vision for the future. So, yeah, it is a concern um, and we need to think how we respond to that. And I think, you know, having a bold and ambitious plan for the country is absolutely the space the Labour Party should be in. What do you think Labour needs to be saying about devolution? Obviously, we live in a very centralised economy and political system. Um, and yeah, the kind of community wealth building agenda, for example, that we've seen in places like Preston is often said to be premised upon greater power being given to local authorities and regional authorities. And yet the kind of devolution experience that we've had in the UK is one that's mainly been driven by the Tories, mainly been about promoting the interests of developers. So do you think that, you know, Labour could be saying something much more progressive about, for example, municipal socialism? Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, obviously, what I'd share with you on this is is what we've been doing in in Salford. So, you know, I talked before about interventionism, neo-Keynesianism, if you like. And it's it's a realisation that the market won't deliver in and of itself for, for the people of, of my city. And, 
you know, acknowledging the, the role of local government in all of this. And it's not a role just to facilitate the market, but to be an active player in, in place. And place, in my case, is, is the city of Salford. You know, previous Labour administrations prior to me taking up office in Salford pursued significant investment into what I would refer to as infrastructure-led development to arrest, if you like, post-industrial decline in the city. So Media City is a great example of that. You know, the work we're doing at the moment around Port Salford, you know, the revival of the Manchester to Liverpool ship canal as a trimodal port here in, in Greater Manchester, reducing our dependency on on HGVs, on, on, on motorways, all the work we're doing around the arts and creative sector, um, working with the Arts Council, the Lottery, even European funding, as well as council capital and, and land, looking again at infrastructure-led development to support artists, creators and makers at a time when, you know, property prices are rising, land values are rising and increasingly artists, creatives and makers are being pushed out of places like, like Salford. And we know this is a real issue because I think London's local plan spoke to this. You know, they were seeing artists, creators and makers going to places like Berlin and, and Paris because, you know, that those cities accommodated artists and creatives and makers better and we need to learn from some of that but for Salford you know we're trying to re-establish our industrial base across arts and creative sectors logistics and manufacturing digital and tech and media link that with our skills and work agenda and our learning city aspirations and then try and target um, areas of high levels of poverty and deprivation, creating jobs and opportunities for, you know, our young people on our council estates across the city of Salford. In a sense, creating our own industrial strategy here in, in the city. And I think devolution needs to speak to this agenda because there's so much untapped potential, in my opinion, in places like Salford, where, you know, if government were serious about devolution, then we could realise some some great achievements, not only for the country and Greater Manchester, but importantly for for the people of the city. You know, if levelling up is to mean anything, we really do have to shift the dial on tackling poverty and inequality in in, in this country. There's absolutely no doubt about that. I, I don't think Salford's economic model is incompatible, really, with what Preston are doing. I think. In a sense, we've been thinking more about that kind of grand planning around sectors and industries. We feel we've got institutional, competitive and place-based advantages in. And we're, we're trying to pitch that to the government, pitch that to the race, rest of Greater Manchester to create those jobs and those opportunities for the people in our city. But we're also, as you've already highlighted, looking at you know council house building through Derive. We're looking at insourcing, you know, in contrast to what we saw under new labour with, you know, the advent of compulsory competitive tendering, new public management and the, the whole myth, if you like, of private sector efficiency. You know, we're, we're trying to move a million miles away from that because, you know, what we've done there is created bureaucracy around um, the delivery of public services. And I've always been a strong advocate of the public sector ethos and public sector workers. You know, some of the most amazing people I've met in my life have been people who've worked in the public sector. And we should be playing to their strengths, their skills and, and their ambition, really, for place and publicly owned services. The democratisation of the public realm as well is a, another big factor, I think, moving forward in terms of civic participation, institutions, organisations and space and the green agenda, you know, responding to the climate change challenges. You know, to deliver on this ambitious industrial strategy in the city of Salford, 
requires more devolution. We've lost £220 million from our revenue budget in cuts and unfunded budget pressures since 2010-11. I think it's about 53% of core funding from central government has been taken away from us. There's so much potential. There's so much optimism, really, in the city of Salford. And actually, this can only be realised in full, in my opinion, if government gets serious about devolution and properly empowering you know local authorities combined authorities up and down the country and you know the Labour Party really needs to quickly articulate its position on all of this because we cannot and we must not continue with more austerity which has disproportionately impacted local government within the state's architecture and it's also disproportionately impacted um, poorer parts of the country, and especially Labour local authorities in the north of the country. So devolution does have some answers. For me, it has to be more than just transportation and connecting cities up. It's got to be about putting money into the pockets of working class people at the end of the day. That's real devolution, um, devolution that tackles poverty and inequality and transforms places like Salford that have really struggled in a post-industrial world. A lot of what you've been talking about today plays into this idea about community wealth building, which is something that has been you know, rolled out in several different parts of the UK. We've spoken about Brown already, but also in various different parts of the US. Do you think this is a helpful frame for Labour to be picking up in terms of its attitude towards local government? Do you think we should be pushing for something like municipal socialism? And yeah, how central do you think that these arguments should be in Labour's pitch to the voters in, as you said, this kind of post-Brexit environment characterised by these huge levels of regional and intergenerational equality, where it's obviously so important to have a clear and coherent vision for devolution and for local government? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's kind of what what I said before in that, you know, I'm fully aware of the Preston model and the focus on anchor institutions, community wealth building, the importance of the high street in, in all of that and the revival of the high street. But I think it's 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 the Preston model and more for me. You know, it is about, you know, tackling the housing crisis through direct intervention, through development companies. It is about, you know, that strategic planning around key sectors and industries to create, you know, the, the level of jobs that we're going to need in a kind of post-COVID world where we know there's going to be huge economic challenges ahead. So, yeah, it's 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 about collaboration in that space as well, you know. You know, sometimes I feel the micro competition between towns and cities is is quite destructive economically. Um, and actually what we need is more cooperation and more collaboration between places to really drive forward with an economic agenda that creates the levels of employment, the decent paid jobs, the skilled jobs aligned to universities, colleges and school education systems. Um, that sees, you know, learning as almost a, a sociological phenomenon. We talk about learning city in, in the city of Salford because, you know, for us, learning doesn't just stop at the school gate. So for me, it's it's the Preston model and more. There's, there's, there's so much more, I feel, as though we can, we can do in that space. I mean, for me, the green economic kind of revolution is a real opportunity for us to, to harness, I think, moving forward in terms of new industries of the future as we respond to the challenges of, of climate change. Some of the things we've been doing in Salford are, you know, a hydroelectric dam on on, on the River Irwell, a solar farm in, in Little Halton, planting loads of trees and just thinking about, you know, how how we can really strategically respond to this, but also at the same time create jobs and opportunities for the people of our, our city. And 
that's for me where where it's at. But municipal socialism, whatever we want to call it, it, it is very much where it's at. The, the state, the public sector, anchor institutions, the community and voluntary sector, social enterprises, cooperatives have a huge role in delivering on this really ambitious agenda. I don't think we can labour under the kind of trickle-down economic notion of neoliberalism any longer, really, because we know that that fundamentally hasn't worked and we need to think about building things from the bottom up, ultimately, with our communities, with our residents, with our businesses in the city, with our community voluntary and social enterprise sector. And that's how we deliver on this, this agenda for me. But doing that in a strategic way and having some planning in the mix, I think, and cooperation between cities and towns is something I'd like to see certainly more of, for sure. Thank you so much, Paul Dennett, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. Thank you very much, Grace.